Welcome back to the podcast, Tigers in the Archives. I'm your host, Tara Wood, the Instruction and Outreach Archivist for the Special Collections and Archives here at Clemson University. One of the important reasons for this podcast is to highlight, discuss, and celebrate the research work accomplished by scholars, students, and others who have used the archival materials found in Clemson's archives. Today, I am thrilled to welcome an eminent scholar with deep ties in the Clemson community. Dr. Rhonda Thomas is the Calhoun Lemon Professor of Literature at Clemson University, where she teaches, researches, and writes about early African-American literature in the Department of English. She has numerous publications and awards, including the work Call My Name Clemson, documenting the Black experience in an American university community, which received honorable mention in the National Council on Public History's 2021 Book Awards. Dr. Thomas is currently faculty director of the award-winning Call My Name Project, for which she has received a Whiting Public Engagement Fellowship, grants from the National Endowment for the Humanities, as well as other state and local grants. Dr. Thomas, welcome to Tigers in the Archives. It's an honor and a pleasure to have you here today to discuss your research. So the obvious place I suppose to start is please tell our audience about your research and what inspired your interests in it. So my research is Call My Name and Call My Name focuses on calling the names and sharing the stories of black people uh, in Clemson history from the antebellum period uh, to the present. So um, they these stories are organized in seven generations. So generation one is enslaved persons, uh, free black people who lived uh, during the antebellum period or who worked uh, on the Fred Hill Plantation. Uh, generation two are sharecroppers, tenant farmers, and domestic workers uh, who labored at Fort Hill during Reconstruction. Uh, generation three are the convicted laborers that our trustees leased uh, to Bill um, Clemson College, and most of them were black young men and boys. Uh, generation four are the wage workers who um, were living initially and working on campus, like doing laundry, um, working in the dining hall or the mess hall, they called it back in the day, uh, doing the landscaping, working on the farm. Uh, but also in the segregated cooperative extension program, um, the agents, home demonstration agents and the agricultural agents who were working out of South Carolina State. Uh, Generation five are the musicians. Black musicians started coming to Clemson in 1920 uh, to perform for social events. Um, this is during Jim Crow, during the segregation era. Uh, and then of course, um, the desegregation generation that starts with Harvey Gantt. Um, but we actually back the story up and talk about um, black students who were applying to come to Clemson prior to Harvey Gantt, um, nice. applying in you know, the fall of 1962 and resorting to a lawsuit after about two years of trying to get in. Um, so we talk about Harvey, but about all of the students who came after him you know, into the 21st century, um, the legacy of Harvey Gantt, we still see evident. Uh, as well as faculty and staff and administrators uh, who were able to come and work at Clemson uh, because Harvey, you know, became a student. Uh, and then finally, mm -hmm. our um, Generation 7 are 21st century activists and artists, and those are our current students 
who are engaged in social justice initiatives, as well as they told me recently, we're artists too, you know, so they right. sing, they dance, uh, they do a lot of things and they wanted to bring uh, their artistic endeavors into Call My Name. And so we said yes. So um, it started, you know, pretty simply. Mm -hmm. I came to Clemson in 2007. Um, I'm a sixth generation South Carolinian and my students don't believe me when I tell them this but I had never heard of Clemson University until 2007 when I was um, looking for a job. And so there was a postdoc uh, position open in the Department of English. It was three years. Um, it looked attractive to me because I thought I could catch my breath, write my book, and then find a job somewhere else. I had no intentions of staying at Clemson. <laughs> um, but I came, yeah, I came, my husband saw the ad and he's like, that's your job, you know, even before it was offered to me. Um, and so when we both saw that we were on the same page, you know, he's from Chicago, didn't really want to come to South Carolina, but he knew this was a great opportunity for me. So we came. That's fabulous. And then on my very first day at work, um, my colleague, Michael Lemahue, who had interviewed me, um, came me and met me over in Hendrick Park, Hendrick's parking lot and walked me to Strode, you know, said the library's right next door, you know, Daniel Hall is right, you know, across the way, and I was in heaven. I was like, man, this is a sweet spot. I've never had all my buildings, like, right next to each other. <laughs> I was, yeah, I was, like, usually. used to hiking everywhere. <laughs> so I was really happy, but then he said, I need to show you something. And he took me over to the center of campus and showed me the Fort Hill Plantation House. Right. And I was stunned. Um, I... I thought, how did I miss this? Because I um, have been very meticulous and very diligent in researching the universities that I was interested in working at, and I didn't recall seeing anything about a plantation uh, anywhere on the website. So here I was. <laughs> you found it. Here I was working on a plantation yep. uh, as I had come back home. Um, so that's how it started. That's amazing. What a wide ranging project. It's um, glorious, really, when you think about the continuity of history that you are able to um, encompass with mm -hmm. it. I, you know, it's something, one of those things that I think a lot of us hope to have is something, you know, in that almost, you know, the annal school kind of deep time mm -hmm. sort of thing. And you've got that right here. Mm -hmm. You know, that makes me think about this because, of course, you came to this and you and you saw it and it was a wow moment but mm -hmm. you know we all as scholars have to formulate our research questions mm -hmm. and adapt those questions once you get into the archives and um so what questions did you uh, probably millions of questions but what questions did you start with mm -hmm. and how did they change you know if at all really? yeah they changed because i mean my first question was what do we know about enslaved people who lived and labored at Fort Hill. It was right. pretty simple, yeah, right? right? We got a house. Um, I took my students um, on a tour. Well, I sent them on the tour because I was out of town. They came back. I was like, so what'd you learn? And <laughs> yeah, they said architecture and artwork yep, and antiques. I was like, <laughs> did you hear about enslaved people? No. Did you hear about slavery? No. So I said, all right, let me go. And so I went and took the tour, and I dressed up like I was a non-traditional graduate student, you know, jeans, sure, sure. you know, nice casual shirt, didn't tell them I was teaching, and said, all right, I'm here for a tour. I was the only one. 
So uh, we did the tour, and same thing happened to me. Same thing. Wow. Same thing. So I asked the guy myself, I said, so why, why didn't you tell me anything about um, slavery or enslaved people? And he said, because the topic is too controversial. Yes. Yeah. Okay. At that time. Sure. Yeah. I don't think the university was comfortable yeah. talking about you know, slavery and exactly. right, that it happened on this land. So that was my question. Like, so what do we know? And then one day on one of those tours, uh, the docent said, um, we have inventories. And I was like, what? Wow, <laughs> we, you we got, have, there's papers. Yeah, like, right, because I'm, I'm a postdoc. I don't have time, you know, to do the deep dive in the archive. So I, I came to Special Collections and Archives immediately after my class. I'm asking questions. No one seems to know what I'm talking about. Um, they call over to Fort Hill and find out where to look, and they were in Thomas Green Clemson's papers. And I still remember getting the box and, you know, kind of slowly going through the folders and getting to the folder that had the deed for the cell of Fort Hill. Right. And I'm, you know, leafing through the deed, and there are the names. All the names. Some place to start. Yeah. And, and so that was a start, right? right? I had 50 names. Right. And then there was a second inventory with uh, over 100 names. So, you know, I could compare the two lists and see who was still here in 1865 yep. at the end of the Civil War. And so that that was the start. Right. So I thought, okay, that's it. I got and then something. someone said, oh, yeah, by the way, there were sharecroppers. <laughs> I'm just oh, like, no. okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah, more. <laughs> right. So how, how much do we know about the sharecroppers? And so we have four agreements, um, and then as word got out of what I was doing, um, descendants of some of the sharecroppers that worked here said, oh, by the way, the Freedmen's Bureau papers that were just released, you know, there's like two contracts in there. Wow. I said, well, no, we didn't know that, but thank you very much. So they sent them to me. So it just, you know, I kept, you know, and then the University of Storing at the time said, oh, by the way, uh, black convicts built Clemson. I was like, really? <laughs> and so it's like, well, what do we know? And so, um, like, look in the trusty minutes, but we don't sure. have names, right? So yeah. I'm looking in the minutes, and I thought, well, maybe the state, because it was from, you know, the penitentiary, I said, right. maybe the state right. has records. And so it's like, well, what, what might the state have? Yeah. So I, you know, contacted every person in you the state of up, South right? Carolina. Yes. And finally, um, actually, one of our archivists said, have you tried the state archive? I wrote them, sure. we have names, we have demographic information, we have court records, we have pardon records, we have a list of names. Oh, and gives so it me just, a little heart. You know, I appreciate your work. I study 16th century women mm -hmm. in London. I, got, I don't have first names, yeah. usually. So I absolutely, this is just warms my heart hearing your, your journey is just yeah. amazing. So you just one thing after another. One so now another. you started working within the community. Was that pretty early on? It was pretty early on because I, I soon realized that many of the enslaved persons after they were emancipated uh, moved into the local community. Are the sharecroppers after their contracts, you know, ended or reconstruction ended? They moved into the local community. Sure. And so, you know, I found names of formerly enslaved or um, sharecroppers on the rolls of the Abel Baptist Church. Okay. Right. Local right. black church, one of the first black churches in this area that was formed. And so I'm thinking there's this connection between campus history and community history that we need to 
we need to bridge, right? Not your typical town and gown. Right. You've got yeah. a... You've actually had people living here whose ancestors were enslaved or sharecropping or even one of the convicted laborers. His, right. you know, he was released and decided to stay and married right. and had children. His granddaughter was working at Clemson, I, I learned when I got here, right? And so for me, it was like, and then one of my community partners said, you know, Clemson College used to be in the town of Seneca. And I'm like, no, that didn't. That's not true. <laughs> and Shelby, her name is Shelby Henderson. She works over in Seneca. She's like, I'm telling you. I'm like, Shelby, that's not true. It was like its own thing. And then it was Calhoun. And then it was Clemson. And she's like, I'm telling you. So um, a descendant of one of the convicted laborers reached out to me. And he said, I saw uh, my great, great, great grandfather's name in the 1900 census. And I'm like, what are you talking about for Clemson College? So I went to Ancestry, pulled up the census, and there he was on the last page of the census for Clemson College. And so I'm looking up, and there it says Seneca Township. And so I had to move over. You got somewhere else to go. And to pull Seneca in, and then we learned we had to pull Anderson in because people were kind of fanning out Mm -hmm. all around. Uh, But the other thing that census did is I was on the last page. And so I started moving backwards to see where did it start? Like who else was included? So the students were next. And then all of a sudden it hit me that there was really no place to live if you worked at Clemson in 1900 because the school had only been open about seven years, right? right? And so there was no like bustling town of, you know, Oh, there's a great quote from Walter Riggs about getting off the train saying, oh, I got off the train and there were some trees and shrubs <laughs> yeah, and only a couple of buildings. And a couple of buildings. Nothing else, he yep. says. So there's nothing here. So right. people lived on campus. Right. So I'm, I'm fanning through there. And we by that time, we had been looking for the wage workers because mm-hmm. I had learned that black folks were working in the laundry and cooking and cleaning and doing all of the labor that they had done in these previous generations. And I'm scanning the pages and I see you know, in for Negro. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, Clemson started as an integrated community. Sure, there were there was housing at the Our edges, campus. right? No, it was within. It was, well, all, it was I, well, I shouldn't initi- say at the edges of the community, mm-hmm. but it was within Clemson. It was, no, I'm not saying the campus community was integrated. Black people exactly. and white people were living next to each other, and then gradually, gradually, okay, I they get were it now. pushed to the mm-hmm. edges. Mm-hmm. Black people mm-hmm. were pushed to the edges of campus as Jim Crow settled in. I got you. I think I've seen an earlier map, or, or not an earlier Later. map, but a map where that process had clearly already happened, mm-hmm. where they that's yeah. it okay. over time they get pushed to the edge of mm-hmm. campus mm-hmm. but initially like that first census in 1900 they're living right next wow. door to each other and it's often people that they're working for so it would be like the nurse who's taking care of the children or oh, the I cook see. right yeah, of course who is cooking mm-hmm. you know for the families but it was also the laundry workers and the farm hands you know and the others but this was the only place you know to live right the only thing that was and kind the of campus was kind of and... right the campus is kind of growing and then as they get a little bit more settled and, you know, and we really settled into the Jim Crow era, then you begin to see them pushing okay. uh, black people into segregated yeah. neighborhoods yeah. and to the edges of the campus. So you have had a lot of, you know, folks helping you, but what kind of challenges did you have to solve yourself? Mm-hmm. I mean, anything that leaps out at you about 
okay, then I finally did it. <laughs> and, you know, I got, I got what I needed or something that you're still searching for. I think um, the, the issue of the wage workers, right? Okay. Because when we first started working and I was like, are there any employment records? Well, no. Um, I said, well, you know, how can we find them? Mm-hmm. So um, I work on several different projects and that census was a major breakthrough. Okay. And so yeah. we have 1910, 1920, you know, 1930, 1940, 1950 just came out. That's right. So all of a sudden we have this working list. Generational. Over gen- we can see who is still here. We sure. can see whose children were here. Sometimes it includes a salary. Wow. Right. And so we can see a comparative analysis of how much, you know, individuals were being paid. Um, and then, you know, the archive has um, a marvelous young man who works here by the name of Carl Red that Carl. I was, <laughs> was introduced to. And um, I, by that time I met him, uh, Carl had been kind of doing a deep dive in the archive right. and kind of saying, you should look here. So once he knew what I was looking for, yeah. Uh, he would often bring me documents because he knew that I would look at every page. Yes. You know, front, back, everywhere. Yes. Um, and so um, recently, um, same area rate, I'm, I'm looking, I know, I know very little about the sharecroppers. We have six contracts, yeah. names, mostly first names. Um, Thomas Green Clemson's have first and last names. Um, and so I'm like, I don't know a whole lot about them or that transition from enslavement right to sharecropping right sure who's here who's still working you know who shows up on those initial lists and so i was here the other week and he brought me this ledger out and he said there are names in here that i think you should take a look at right you know, so i'm scanning through and i'm like all right i'm, I'm not finding what what he told me so i just kept going lots of blank pages and all of a sudden the handwriting starts up again and I'm scanning the pages and I start seeing names. Oh my. Of people that I know. Yes. Right? Whose names that I have seen on these documents. And so all of a sudden I could trace from 1854 to 1865 and then see the transition from emancipation to freedom to get to that first contract, right? Yeah. It's kind of like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's like a puzzle, mm-hmm. you know? And I think for me, it's like I will look everywhere yes and in unexpected places so yes, you're like leaping, you never know right you're leaping through the president's records yes and there's this random receipt in there that has the name of an african-american mm-hmm. that worked or you know that they gave some special honor to and they're just tucked in these little places little, little tiny pieces to, and but so that's you a name them. and then you it's can name, go find it's an it incident. And- and, you can and, check and see if you have it on another record, and it adds another little piece to that person's life. That's amazing. And so that is the challenge yep. of this work, that I don't have a document that I can go to, and it's like it's all Every written there. there. Right. It's these little pieces yes. that you knit back together. Or I tell people, like, if you look at that deed, um, there's some names on there, yes. and that's the only place that name appears. So what can I do? Well, well I'm like, well... That baby that doesn't have a name has a mom and a daddy and brothers and sisters. And all of a sudden, we have a little right. tiny biography and a little story about how we found their name. Right. And they go from that one you know, line on the page to kind of the restoration affirmation yes, of, a, a, of their a lived being. Experience. Right? Yeah, that they were there. They were there. And, and they left. despite 
them being in a really horrible position of being a child being sold, that they were in a family. Yes. Right. They had a mom. They had a dad. That had, basic humanity. Right, that, that you just basic, have to. And you you have to bring it, it out, right? right? You have to you bring it. it to the surface. You affirm it. Regardless if, if there's even any descendants right. nearby. Right. It's like that, that child mattered. Is, that child mattered. That mattered. And even though that child doesn't have a name, we're going to say that child was in a family and it's part of our history. And yes. we're going to honor that yes. life. Yes. And, you know, so often that's one of the things about, you know, being a scholar is yes, you want to do this work and you want to get accolades for it, perhaps. Uh, but I want them to get accolades. You want them. Those stories <laughs> yeah, are more want, important right. to us usually. I mean, yeah. I know, I know what you know. Gosh, I ha I haven't had, you know, much experiences like those. But I, you know, I'll never forget the first time I realized, you know, there's these women printers, mm -hmm. these women in yeah. London in the 16th century. And I don't know most of their first names. They were just mm -hmm. Mistress So-and-so, right? Mm -hmm. And one woman and then another woman and another woman, I see them, oh, this was so, she used to be so-and-so's wife, another printer. Wow. And then she was also married to this other printer. Mm -hmm. And that's where I went, why are they marrying all these printers? Mm -hmm. There has to be a reason. I mean, yes, this is their 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 neighborhood, their milieu, right? Mm -hmm. But one woman, five different printers wow and i was like what's that about i it made me go in a different direction mm -hmm. and say okay see the pattern right mm -hmm. where why is this mm -hmm. because it was one woman after another mm -hmm. now it wasn't all of them but it was a lot maybe mm -hmm. 30 or 40 percent oh, wow. of the women that i ran across had been married to more than one printer mm -hmm. so i went back to the um stationers company rules and when they got their charter, one of the first rules they came up with was that women could not own copyrights, meaning they could not have they could not have hold the rights to print a particular book unless they were printing it themselves mm -hmm. as a widow mm -hmm. or they were married to, they were a, married printer. to a printer. <laughs> right? <laughs> wow. And I thought, okay, well, why would they ask for that? Why would they have that as a rule? Yeah. Right from the start, 1558. Turns out. They wanted to be able to maintain their monopoly. The stationer's company had to rule to printing, right? Yeah. And the if if you know Susan Smith went off to marry a guy after her husband the printer died, and mm. she goes off to marry a guy in the Draper's company, mm. she would take some of her dower and any other you know inheritance. Maybe her father mm -hmm. was a printer, and she inherited some copyrights. She could take them to the Draper guy. And he could print. Mm. But they're like, no, 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 Monopoly, mm. right? <laughs> and, it, you know, I, that's why I love so hearing the stories that scholars go through, you know, mm. where you go and you're like, wait a minute, what about this? And how do I find it? That, this mm. is an amazing story. Mm. I mean. And it's piece by piece. Exactly. Right? And then all of a sudden you realize that, you know, sometimes we're able to tell, you know, a lot of stories. And, and the community members, like Mrs. Martin, her... Um, Ancestors were enslaved at Fort Hill. Yeah. She heard about what I was doing, um, came to campus and tried to find me. And then one of my community partners heard about her, sent me to her house. And when I walked in, and this is pictures in my book, when I walked in, she had this, right, this tree of photographs from her, you know, ancestor who was enslaved all the way to her great grandchildren. And 
I just stood there and I told her, I said, I'm sorry, I can't talk right now. And I had never seen like all of the generations. And then she's standing there, the granddaughter of this woman who had been eight years old when she got freedom. And I just, it was just, you know, those are the moments you live for. Exactly. They don't happen very often, but when they do, I just wanted to savor that moment. Yes. And um, Mrs. Martin, she's still alive. She's about 96. And she's, yeah, she's wonderful. wonderful. Yeah, longevity runs in her family. Yeah. So we we were able to get oral history. She gave us so many photographs that it would require, doesn't it? I mean, and that she did that, you know, went, you know, I mean, that's the work you're doing as well for others as much as, you know, for yourself. But she did that work. She's kept it alive. And And then she shared it. And and we were able to share it with our community right and so again right that bridge yeah got built because we know about sharper and caroline yeah and matilda yep but and you know and here's mrs martin living right down the road you know (laughs) um and then she was able to help us you know make that make that connection and you know kind of resurrect that story and just provide so many. She had oral history that had been Absolutely. passed down, right? She has all these letters and documents, photographs, and and then her own family story. Her mother ended up uh, marrying um, a white man over in Calhoun Falls. You know, they were common law okay. because, you yeah. know, he's white, she's black, uh, never legal. Uh, and so this whole, like, history of South Carolina gets infused into wow. the story and the way you know, it race relations is. It's are, almost iconic in mm-hmm. that sense. Of, like her family, like represents represents everything of how these things. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So that's the other thing that has happened, right? That we see, we have the Clemson story. The Clemson story is part of the, you know, the fabric of America. Exactly. Right? It's Deeply this microcosm of, exactly. right, of what's happening in our country. 